Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I am your host, Tracy Thomas, and today for The Stacks Book Club, we are discussing Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson. We have brought back the wonderful Jason Reynolds, author of Look Both Ways and Long Way Down, to help us discuss this book. There will be spoilers today, so listen at your own risk. All right, here it is, your weekly reminder. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. There is a link there that will take you to all the books discussed today, as well as the social media accounts for The Stacks and our guests. Plus, if you shop through the links on Amazon, you're helping to keep The Stacks free. If you're looking for an amazing book recommendation, send us an email to askingthestacks at gmail.com. Myself and my guest will read it on air, discuss it, and then give you a personalized book recommendation or five. So email askingthestacks at gmail.com with your name, what you're looking for, and maybe a few titles you've loved or hated. If you like the stacks and want to support the work we're doing, here are a few easy ways you can help. First of all, join us over on Patreon. That's a website where you support the work we're doing and earn perks for yourself. We've got a virtual book club, we got inside access to the show, and we have an amazing community of other readers who love the podcast. So head over to patreon.com slash the stacks to join in. The last thing you can do to help the show is definitely the easiest. Subscribe to the stacks wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and tell your friends and family about the show. It goes a really long way to helping us reach new audiences. All right, now it's time for my conversation with Jason Reynolds about Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson. And remember, there are spoilers today. All right, you guys, we're back for the Sex Book Club this week. Jason Reynolds is back. We're talking about Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson. Just came out this September 2019, so it's a brand new book. Jason, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Good to see you again. Oh, yeah. We're, we're pretending like we haven't been sitting here exactly. this all day. <laughs> no one ever asks, do you actually do two different days? No, it's always one day. Okay. Red at the Bone. We always start in the same place. What did you think of the book? It's a masterpiece. Yeah. Okay, so I have to be, I want to make sure that full disclosure, yes. this person is very close to me. This right? person being Jacqueline being Woodson. Jacqueline Woodson is very close to me in real life. So, I, I, so I'm so i not going to pretend like there's not a bias. Okay. There is a bias. But can you be critical? Oh, yeah. Okay. I can be critical. As long as you can be critical, I can be we critical. can do this. I can be critical. Okay. Um, but I do, uh, even with that being said, I do think it's brilliant. I really, really do uh, for many, many reasons. Number one, um, 
Jacqueline has a way of really building out whole worlds with just a few words, mm-hmm. right? Brevity is her is her specialty. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in like another Brooklyn, which you know, a different book of her, her last sort of novel. I mean, you're talking about twenty years and twenty thousand words, right? Right, like it's really something that she's able to do, and so that's the first thing I think it's really powerful that anyone could write such complex tales in such you know only a few. There's not many words in this book, right? The other thing that I think I love about this story is honestly. It touches on something that we don't talk about often, but I've got so many women friends who feel this way. And what I mean by that is, is I have friends who have children, but who don't feel like mothers. Right. And it's a really tough, complicated thing to talk about in any community, um, just because there's so much, there's a premium put on the mother-child bond for obvious reasons. Biologically, it just feels like it should be it, it, uh, automatic, but right. I have women friends who have birthed children who do not feel that connection, um, right. who raise their children, who love their children, uh, but who wouldn't consider themselves motherly. Right. And so the story uh, is about, uh, you know, Iris, Iris is painted. You could read this and say that Iris is a bad person, but my reading of it isn't that Iris is a bad, it's complicated for sure. Right. But I don't read this and look at Iris as a villain because I know Iris. Right. Well, I think also when it comes to teenage pregnancy, I think about myself because as a reader, I always just put myself in as many characters I possibly can at any given time, especially when I read fiction. And I think I can't imagine having that responsibility at 15 and that I would respond to it in a positive way. Like I was the kind of teenager that if I had to do something, if I was told I had to do it, I automatically hated it. So even though she chose to keep the child and that was ultimately her decision and she pushed for it, I feel like that resentment is really real. Gotta be real. And like, you know, I've had a lot of women on the show who are mothers, especially author mothers, and they talk a lot about that kids can get in the way of the work, yeah. of the creativity, of, you know, like the, our childbearing ages for women are our most, that's when we're at the peak, yeah. like at the peak of our game, humans, you know, like 15 to, well, now 45, yeah. but still like that's your. It's your peak time. Right. I mean, I was, I was, you know, with, and here comes the name, the name drop of all name drops. Oh, but I, I was wait. if it's Barack Obama, it's not. Okay. It's not. But I was I was <laughs> at uh, I was at um, Alice Walker's seventy fifth birthday, party. Mm. and she said uh, someone asked her what what writing advice, mm. and, uh, and she said I know what you want me to say, I know what you're expecting me to say, but the truth is what I'm going to tell you is don't have children. Mm. It was interesting, and and it was like oof, you could you could feel all the air in the room uh, mm. just sort of be vacuumed out. Uh, and she said, and the reason I say that is because it is very difficult to give birth to yourself and another person. Right. And it, and it was, you know. Because like, uh, you're creating and then your body is creating. It's creating. And the amount of time and energy and focus on both things is just impossible. Yeah. Because you could be focusing all of that on one of those two things. Yeah. But because and instead, of this other thing, yeah. you have to split it. And because your body is creating a thing, it's a thing you can't put down. Right. It's a thing you can't let rest. It's a thing you can't take some time off from. It's a thing you can't, you, like. It, and even if you could, everyone around you would never let you. It can't happen. You couldn't admit that's what you were doing. Exactly. 
like imagine. Imagine. Imagine if Alice Walker was like, yeah, my kid's garbage and it's, <laughs> it's my kid is sucking all of me and mm. I don't like it. And so like this is not for me. This is not for me. You know? And so I think with, with, with Iris in the book, it's she's 16. Right. And she still wants to experience her life. Right. But she has a child. Well, yeah, and, and it's and so I I found the story to really put you in the crosshairs of complication, right? Really mm-hmm. put you there to say, all right, I know you think you know, I know you think you, and I know you're ready to judge, I know you're ready, but but really look at the situation and 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 try to understand what's going on. And it's not just with her daughter Melody, but it's with her daughter's father. Mm-hmm. Right? This is a, this is basically a story of of a young woman, at least from, to me. And this is speaking to somebody who is a man. And so I want to make sure that I preface this by saying, I do not know what any of this feels like. I do not know. I do not know. Right. So right. this is me as a, an outsider and a voyeur, um, reading this story and trying, right. and trying to sort of understand. But it seems to me that this is a tale about, uh, about expectation, uh, about family pressure, uh, about rebellion in the midst of said pressure, because they also are like, they grew up well off. Right. Right. And so there's this, and there are these expectations of what it means to be uh, a, 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 a respectable woman. Right. And then she's pregnant. And, and they're Catholic. And they're, and they're Catholic, uh, which is a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then she's, and she's pregnant, but still wants to st- still, still wants to keep control of her autonomy, which means that she's going to have to be the villain in someone's story. Right. Or in multiple people's stories, and that she can't expect her child, who will grow uh, and change and 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 find life for herself, to um, to love to to feel to to feel uh, like her daughter in right. the same way that she doesn't necessarily feel like a mother. Right. Um, I, I found it. I I really thought it was something that I, th- I think it's a common. You know how like Bill Street, right? If Bill Street could talk. It's that same sort of feeling, that feeling. It's, it's the opposite where it's, for them, it's more like, look, this love thing can happen and we can make this thing work. And the right. parents and the parents serve as buttresses for it instead of being like, you've disappointed us. They're like, all right, you know, yeah. here we go. Yeah. You know, we were going to welcome this baby into the world. And I think in this tale, this is a, a different, a different sort of way to think about the complications and the family dynamics in the black community and any community for that matter, where it's like, look, this, this baby is happening. I know it's happening. I was happy when I when I found that I was pregnant, but I had not thought about the fact that you would be a human, right. and, that, and that that human would then need me. But that human needs me in a way that I can't provide because I need me, and I need to feel like I can do a thing, and I'm still growing, and I'm still evolving. And what do I have to teach you when I've yet to experience life for myself? And right. and I'm willing to sacrifice all of that to feel whole in myself, even though it may be impossible to do, knowing that I have to leave a bit of myself behind. Right. The, the great conundrum. Right. Well, I think in a way this book almost felt like fantasy to me because how many young black women get to get pregnant and then go to college. Right. Like it, that almost feels like not possible in mm. a way. So this book felt almost not, and not fantasy like dr- dragons, dragons. <laughs> <laughs> not like Game of Thrones, but fan like a parable or something, not mm. an actual story because I just couldn't quite believe it. Oh, you know, couldn't. like I couldn't quite, I mean, I, I believed the characters and I believed it, but I, I kept being like, well, this would never happen. Right, right, right. It's almost unbelievable in a good way, 
but it didn't doesn't feel like what I've seen in the world. So I'm I'm I agree, but I'm gonna push back a bit. Okay, go. So I think the reason that we're so not used to seeing it is because we rarely talk about uh, the intersection between race and class. Right. And so, and so what's really happening here is the reason that she's still afforded the opportunity to go to college is because they're not hard up for money. Right. It's because there are support systems in place. It's be, like I have a friend who had a baby at, at 15 and he, he went on and, and she and, and his baby's mom went on to do whatever they wanted because the grandparents looked after the kid. Right. Because there was enough of a surplus to do right. so. They didn't have to worry. Right. Right. Well, I I don't think that it's not possible. Like I have friends who have had kids young and then gone and and gone to college and you know done all those things. But there's something about the way that it's written in this book. It almost because it just feels almost so obvious that that was what was going to happen in a way. I don't know. I kind of liked it. I like that that sense of I I can't find the right word. It's not fantasy and it's not parable, but it's when a story is. I don't know. It's like a fairy tale. Mm. It's kind of felt like fairy tale ish, right? Mm. You have all these characters that feel like versions of archetypes that we know, mm. right? Except for Iris is not that, right? Iris is the one who's not the archetype that we see. She's the one that feels different yeah. to me. I- Iris is Sula. Yeah, she's she's the one who is not what we expect, right? Every choice she makes is not the one that we think, right. aside from keeping the kid. That's the one that we're like, okay, we know that's what's going to happen. We know there's a kid, yes. so we know that she chose to keep the child. Yes. But pretty much everything else she does for the rest of the book is not the thing. And so I think that some of – I think that what Wood, Jacqueline Woodson does that's so brilliant is she is playing us against what we think and what is possible. Right. And so that's what I mean by sense of fantasy, that it almost doesn't feel real – because we're not used to seeing it. Not right. that it doesn't happen, but that right, we're, not. we're not what we what we think is real is what we're told is real. Sure. And we've never been told this kind of story. I think it's I think it's it's also really grounded up against the backdrop of respectability. So much so. Right? So so college has to happen. Right. You can't you can't you can't double down on disappointment. Right. Right? If so you want to keep this kid we need you to still go to college you have to so we to, can show face. There you go. Respectability is key, right? You can't double down on disappointment. So it's like, all right, this baby thing is happening. And the girls in the neighborhood, the Caribbean girl, I love this scene when she's like, and all the Caribbean girls knew she was pregnant. Yeah. We could tell. We could tell. <laughs> we could tell because your butt's sitting up and you, right. right? Everything is changing. Right, right, right. right? And, and it's like, well, you're going to have this baby cool. I mean, not cool, but you go, okay. but go ahead and get your education. You know what I mean? If, if that's what it's going to be. So at least we can say what's left of the dignity of our family. Right. Right. You've disappointed us. Right. Oof. Yeah. Really something. Disappointment. I, disappointment. Yeah. And then you deal with all the sexuality. Really like that, that, that Jack. Uh, it's funny because I'm always used to calling her Jackie. So I'm trying to catch it because this is, she hates when I say it in places that aren't. Jacqueline. Jacqueline. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, I, I also love that Jacqueline always writes um, queerness into her books in a way that feel very, very, sort of familiar yes, to a lot of us, right? It's a lot of people, right? Who, like it almost always feels like, um, 
I don't know. Like it's self-discovery. It always feels like self-discovery, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. we're on a, a journey of self-discovery and we don't know uh, what's lurking around the corner. But whatever it is, we're going to be open to that. And so I and and that some of that self-discovery is reactionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it is coming out of grasping for something to hold on to. Right. Uh, she does this often in her work, and I think it's I think it's closer to the truth than that. Right. That so many of us are doing that, uh, where it's like, look, I just need to feel something. Right? I need to right. feel something, and I and that thing that I'm feeling, I'm hoping is going to roll me into a bigger thing. Mm. Right. That this is a, that I'm on an avalanche, and that as I'm gathering snow. That the things that I'm feeling is going to make my snowball a new snowball, a bigger mm, snowball, right. right? So that I can continue to 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 trample the things in front of me, right? And I think she does that with Iris and Jam in mm-hmm, the story. Jam mm-hmm. is her lesbian, her short-term lesbian lover, right? Uh, and, and and even that scene, right? The, the secrets, the right. idea of keeping secrets, the milk, the milk. That's a powerful scene. That scene is unreal. That scene is unreal. That scene is right? so good. In a moment of intimacy, in a moment of, of passion, uh, there is a thing that you have left behind that cannot be hidden. Right. Not in the dark, right? You could be in the dark. You could be in the throes of passion. But no matter what, there will always be a reminder that there's a bit of you that you have tried your best to detach right. from that you cannot because your body is naturally still making the thing to feed the thing right. that you have tried so hard to forget. Right. What an amazing right. thing to think about. Well, that is also kind of that magical fantasy because that's not real. That's not right. science, right? right? But that that is something that is kept in the book, that that's a choice that she made in the book. It It's a physical manifestation of all the things that parents feel when they make choices that are for themselves. Yep. Right. And it's, it's like so clear with the, like, um, <sighs> the inside coming out, right? This, right. The whole thing, right. right? Like, like, what does it mean? Like, you know, we've all been told by our elders, you know, what would have done in the darkness will, will always come to the light. Mm-hmm. And, and if she, she wrote quite literally, uh, right. The secret on the inside coming out, right? Like it's coming out. It's all over the place. Right. It's all over you. It's all over your partner. It's all over the, it's everywhere. Right. And so now what? Now, now you have to deal with and it. Now you have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. And it's not just going to be as easy as cleaning the sheets. Right. Right. It's not that simple. Right. You're going to have to deal with this. Right. Um, I thought that was masterful. Yeah. It's Okay. I'm sure you get this question all the time. You got it yesterday at the thing at the Grove. But I'm going to ask again because Jacqueline Woodson has done it. And so mm. are you going to write books for adults? Uh, yeah, sure. For sure. Do I am. I, I have been. Okay. I, I am working on them. Great. Thank you. <laughs> not that your books aren't for adults. Again, look both ways. So good. Yeah. I'm an adult who does not read young people's books. It's just not something that I'm into. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of it is because a lot of them are not good. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, a lot of books are not good, period. Right. So I don't want to disparage young people's books. But well, as an adult reading a young person book, I feel like even some that are good for young people are just <laughs> not good for adults. Yeah, <laughs> like, for sure. not interested. Um, but... Both Another Brooklyn and Red at the Bone are adult books. Mm-hmm. I put that kind of in air quotes. And I guess what I'm wondering is as a writer, do you go do you go say, okay, I have this idea, kids walking home from school, middle grade. Or do you say, 
okay, I'm going to write this book. And your editor says, I think this is probably middle grade and not young adult. Like who's making the decision about what, where a book is positioned? Mm, It just depends. For me, it's all about uh, where I hear the voice. Okay. So if I'm thinking about writing a story about a 12 year old, Mm -hmm. it's middle grade. Okay. Right. Like if I'm like, all right, this is an 11 year old, 12 year old. This is a sixth grader, seventh grader. This is you know, a knucklehead, you know, Mm -hmm. it's usually going to be a middle grade voice. Um, But if I'm thinking about it, somebody older, it's typically going to land in the YA space. Uh, Even though you could write something about an older kid that lands in the adult space as well. Right. That's like another Brooklyn. Right. Another Brooklyn. Is is somewhere between middle grade and YA as far as who the characters are. Right. But it is an an adult adult book. Though, like a very cool kid. Well, it's really an adult <laughs> book because it's being writ- told from the perspective of an adult looking back. Oh, I see. Right? So yeah. it's really an adult reminiscing right. about a moment, right? Whereas right. Salvage the Bones, Jasmine Ward is a 15-year-old girl. But that's it's an adult book. And it's an adult book. Right. You know, it's complicated. Yeah. So it's something that so it's something that comes from the author more yeah. than the than the editor. I, I think it depends on the work. Sometimes it's us making those decisions and sometimes you just make a thing. Mm-hmm. And the author and, and the editors are like, we think this is probably going to swing high or it's going to, maybe this is something that's for a little younger or, you know, it just kind of depends. But usually for me, I, I know what I'm doing. I know who you I'm You go writing. in knowing who your audience yeah, is. Yeah. Like when I was writing Ghost, I knew what Ghost was, I knew who Ghost was for. You know, when okay. I was writing Long Way Down, I knew where it would land. These are things that I, I'm, I'm conscious of um, because I kind of have to be in order to make sure that I'm getting it right. Right. Because the know? way that you would talk to a 10-year-old is different than the way you talk to an 18-year-old. Absolutely. And the way that they would talk. Right. right, the way that they would speak and, and and see the world is going to be completely different. You know, right. a ten year old is full of questions, and an eighteen year old uh, has already has already started uh, to experiment with the questions that he had when he was ten, right. or she had when she was ten. You know. Okay, this just got me another question. <laughs> sensitivity readers, oh, you've yeah. heard this term. Do you have kid no. sensitivity readers? No, no, no. Is I'm, that a thing? It is. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I don't. I don't have uh, readers or sensitivity readers. Um, I don't think anything is wrong with it um, because – and I know that in the broader world, people have all these weird feelings about the idea. Wait, I'm sorry. We should say what a sensitivity reader is. Okay. Sorry, I didn't do that. It's okay. <laughs> so a, sensitiv- a sensitivity reader is basically someone who puts their eyes on your story to make sure uh, that you aren't um, being harmful with language so or that, or that you're making that, – that you're sort of representing whatever you're representing in a way – that is uh, respectful and, and, and quote unquote factual, right? right. Uh, I don't use them because I don't let anyone see my work. Okay. I am really, really private about the things that I'm making until it is done. And so my agent and editor are the only people who ever read okay. my work until it's in the store. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't, I just don't, I can't do it. Um, I do not disagree with the idea of sensitivity readers uh, because I think that, and, and I know the broader conversation, I, I hear people outside of our, Outside of children's literature, they're like, man, this is, you know, people have all these emotions and feelings about what they think about sensitivity readers. What people don't seem to wrap their minds around, though, is that the stakes are much higher for us, right? And so uh, people are like, I don't understand why, like, a writer should write what he writes. Sure. The stakes are higher because we're writing for a very particular population, mm. the children. And so what, what adults think is should just fly, what we're saying is, look, you've got to be careful because you may write something in a book that you think is right about some Asian kid and that Asian kid reads it and it breaks their heart right? because they've always, because every time they see themselves, it, it, it's the same cliche. Right. It's the same. So, and this is a seven year old, right? The damage is different 
right? It's right. not that, right? And so we have to, we have hmm. to be a little more careful, be a little more diligent. Like this is the way it is. And it's ugly and it's messy and it sometimes gets, it sometimes becomes harmful, uh, which we're, which I don't agree with. I don't think that you have to burn a person's legs off to hold their feet to the fire. Right. Right. But I do think that critique is necessary, uh, that we should be, uh, careful. Um, but that in that, in that caution does not mean that we have to limit, minimize, or or make rudimentary the things that we make. They, they can still be sophisticated. They can still push the line. They can still right. challenge everything that we're trying to challenge. They can still tell good stories and just be factual in terms of some of the cultural, as factual as possible. Right. Because your sensitivity readers are going to be reading it from their perspective. It's like you give the book to me and be like, does this sound like a black kid? And I'm going to be like, it sounds like some of the black kids I know, but there are gazillions of black right. children and we all are polylithic. Well, I think that's the issue with sensitivity yeah. readers that I feel the most is that, okay, so so you're a black guy and you decide you're writing a book that has a, a Cuban kid mm-hmm. and you give it to your three mm-hmm. Cuban friends to read. Yeah. And they say, yeah, sure, this sounds right. Yeah, sure, this sounds right. But then you put it out in the world and there's a whole lot of different kind of Cuban people. Sure. So, like, I don't know. I don't know if Marco Rubio is going to feel the same way about seeing a Cuban kid as a, a freaking. Of course. What's his name? Puig. Yasiel Puig. Like, Puig yeah. <laughs> they're Cuban. Yeah. They both are going to have feelings about Cuba. You know, like, so it's like, well, what? It's better to have done it than to have given it to no one. Right. Sure. Someone's got to read your work, but I feel like the, the question about sensitivity readers that I come is like, you could get, you could get an okay from your friend. Yeah. You could get a total okay from a person and then you put it out in the world and that person, that's not their experience. And so you still get destroyed because, sure. you know, like, so. it's, but it's worth the extra step. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. It, it, could, it, it still could go south, but it's worth the extra step. Right. And that's really all it, all it really boils down to. Now what I don't like is when the when the critique comes, everyone throws their sensitivity readers under the bus. Right. Oh, I gave it to people. I gave it to someone, so I right. gave it, which is why I also don't read. I don't do sensitivity readings. Mm. Don't give it to me. You're not going to use me. Right. Um, you know, like I, I'm sorry, but you can't give it to me because I, as soon as shit hits the fan, and it's going to be mm-hmm. like, well, Jason Reynolds said it was okay. Jason Reynolds is not the spokesperson for all black people. Right. Right. Like it, it was okay for my particular experience. Right. But we're all different. You know right. what I mean? But I also think that the argument should be on the other side of the coin as well. The critiques have to have to also understand that there are many different forms of all these cultures and experiences. And right. so what you're doing in, in the midst of a, of what you think is a fair critique is doing the exact same thing, which is making a broad brushstroke of what you think and what you're projecting this particular culture is supposed to be like. Right. We've run up against that on this show a little bit. When we did the educated episode with Sarah, a few people pushed back on the author's experience as a Mormon woman mm. and said, well, that's not my experience and I'm Mormon and this and that. And I kind of had to be like, okay, both things can be true. Two things can be true. You guys can all believe the same religion and have totally different experiences. Yes. I, and yes, which it seems very obvious to me, <laughs> right? Like that seems obvious. I, I know many people who are Jewish, like I am, who have had very different experiences in Judaism than I have. Exactly. And that doesn't mean that I'm a liar or they're a liar. But I do think we get upset. I think people are prone to be upset about seeing ourselves in ways that aren't always great. And so we want to blame someone else for that depiction because we're worried that if if we're portrayed in a negative way, we meaning a group that we identify with, that another group that doesn't identify that way is going to assume that that's how we all are. 
Right. Right. Like nobody's like, oh, all white men are serial killers because I read American Psycho. Right. Nobody has that problem. Not a single person. And yet. Exactly. And I I feel like it all roots back to the same thing we we say we're trying to combat, which is the idea of respectability. At the end of the day, quite frankly, feel how you want to feel about me. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about this, this same exact argument I watched play out in Hollywood mm. um, with Tyler Perry, mm. right? And so everybody is celebrating Tyler Perry now because of what he's been able to do. Shout out to Tyler Perry, by the way. Like, I'm very proud, yeah. right, that Tyler Perry has been able to do what he's done. But I remember 10 years ago when people were trash, when Spike Lee was trashing Tyler Perry, saying right. that Tyler was a coon, Tyler was this, Tyler was that. The truth is Tyler was representing a, a swath of the culture Right. That maybe Spike Lee doesn't represent. Maybe maybe Brooklynites and New Yorkers and, Cali- and Californians don't see. But if you're in Mississippi, you're in Alabama, Tyler Perry's your guy. Right. He's representing you and what you grew up with and how you grew up. And it feels familiar. Even if you don't like it, it feels familiar to them. And these are the same people who will then say, you got to love all of us. You can't pick and choose which ones of us right. you love. Black girl magic got to be Michelle Obama and Cardi B. You can't right. just be. Right. But when it comes down to the, But in this moment. If it makes you, if it makes you feel funny about representation, if it makes you, if you, if you associate it with a negative connotation, then suddenly he's a coon and an enemy to the culture. Right. When he's done more for the culture in Hollywood than maybe anyone. Right. 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 And so that's how I feel. Like if yeah. you, don't, if you don't like it, if I write something and you're like that ain't my black experience, good. Right. I'm so glad we're not all the same. Right. Right. That there's <laughs> other experiences, and also I think when it comes to art, especially. Part of making art is putting it out in the world and letting it get torn up. Sure. That's part of it. You sure. can't be an artist and not understand that that's coming and not expect that and not let that feed you in some way. Because if you don't, if you shut down, if that ends you, you were never really about the art, right? It was never about the creative process. It was never about the thing. And I don't, I mean, maybe some of that is a little heady i went to nyu for theater so some of that is just (laughs) bullshit that you know we learned in school but that's the only way that i personally can be okay with trashing other people's stuff yeah right is like saying that it comes from a place of that is how art works yes like you you're putting you're making a thing and putting it on display publicly right the public brings whatever they bring to it and in the midst of them bringing that to it, they form opinions and judgments and, and they decide whether or not your work connects to them in some way or if it doesn't or if it becomes, if, it, if it's a verse or whatever it is, right? right. What, what happens most times is that authors and, and artists feel these days feel the need to respond. And the truth of the matter is you've made your statement. They've responded. That's right. the end of the conversation. Your art is the thing. Your art is the thing. And if they, and if people disagree with it, they're allowed to disagree with it. If people criticize it, they're allowed to criticize it. Right. Like it's it's fine. But 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 what never happens is these the the critiques, uh, or the critics and the and the viewers of the art. But they never seem to remember is that you're also bringing your baggage to this. Right. That what you're that what you're experiencing and what you're feeling on the inside has less to do with the thing that is made and more to do with who you are. Right. How you feel. Right. What's happening in your life, your insecurities, your feelings about uh, politics and respectability and who's going to look and who's going to judge and right. what is this going to mean for the broader picture of who we are as marginalized people and whatever group you choose to identify as that has nothing to do with that sometimes that has nothing to do with the artist and more to do with you dealing with your own mess that you have brought to the canvas with you right but refuse to take accountability for right the art the, the artist's job is to create discourse right to create dissonance in the body right 
right? Complicate you. That is right. the job. Right. Art is not science. It's not. It's not math. It's not. And those things are amazing. And those things are super important. But those things are different. And I think that sometimes people, just because something is upsetting, doesn't mean that it's bad. Just because something makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean that it's wrong. Exactly. It just means that, that something's happening. Something's happening in you. Something's happening in the world. Something's happening between all the pieces that come together. And that's why we have art. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And you can't have art without an audience. That's the other thing. And I think artists forget that. And I'm, I'm going to include myself in that creative space because like I make something that goes out into the world. And sometimes people will say like mean things about me, which they, <laughs> thank you. I get them all. I appreciate you. But the other part is that I have to remember, okay. Okay. I read a book. And I talked about it and I didn't like it for these reasons, but that's because that's where I came from. And this person who loved that book and that was their favorite book they read in the last 20 years, they came to it from another place and that's okay. And that's the whole point. When I was putting out my first novel, I remember being so nervous because I knew the critiques were coming. Mm. 
And I went to visit a friend of mine who owned a restaurant in Brooklyn. And I'm sitting at the bar and I'm bummed out. And he said, what's the matter? I said, man, this book comes out tomorrow. Like, what if they hate it? You know? He said, listen, let me tell you something. He said, if, if somebody were to come to me and ask me to make them the perfect meal, mm-hmm. I would go to the butcher and I'd get the perfect steak cut. And I'd come back here and I would season it and tenderize it. And I would marinate it and do all the things. And I would make sure that it was ready. I would grill it to the perfect temperature. I would make all the vegetables and accoutrement to go with it. I would plate everything beautifully with the right amount of drizzle and jus and all the things. I'd get the most expensive bottle of wine I could find. I'd open the wine and pour it perfectly. I'd set the table. I'd light the candles. I'd put the steak on the table and do everything I'm supposed to do. And if that person cut into that steak and took a bite and did not like it, it's because they preferred fish. Right. Not because I didn't cook a perfect steak. That's right. And then I say, well, how do you know that you cooked the perfect steak? And he said, if it is what you intended it to be, mm. then it's a perfect steak. I love your friend in Brooklyn. That's so right. That's so right. Okay. I, I, we're going to just slide right into something else that is related. Awards. <laughs> you have been heavily acknowledged for your work. Amazing. Congratulations. You're on the National <laughs> Book Award long list currently for Look Both Ways. Or sh- sorry. Finalist. Right. That's what they call it. Whatever. When, this is, when this is heard, we'll, we'll see. Know. Yeah. I hope that you win. Thank you. But what does it mean? Doesn't matter. What is what about being recognized for your work is important to you, and what about it is not? I'll tell you. You know, first of all, I, I will say because I don't want to be the guy who pretends like these things don't matter. Right. That's what happens. Like, but some people don't care, and then some people do. I I'm in the middle. Okay. I what I care about is that the moment that you're given an award, uh, because this, these books are. Um, written with young people in mind, the moment you're given an award, it literally bolsters the access right. of this book getting in the hands of more children. That's what I care about more than anything. Um, what I care about less than, but still care about big time, respect to my peers. The truth is, is that I, I, I got a chip on my shoulder the size of the earth. Mm-hmm. Right? I come from a certain place in a certain space in which that's just the way it is. Right. I, I, I always feel like I have something to prove. I, I, you know, I, I am a person... Who, who, you know, who carries that weight um, and who is constantly trying to stick it to everybody. I want to put my foot on the necks of everyone. This is who I am and how I am. Right. Um, I eat everybody's lunch, right? <laughs> including my adult partners who, who write in the adult sector, my poet friends, my nonfiction friends. I want to be talked about in every circle and I want them to know when it's all said and done that that dude who wrote for children wasn't no joke. Right. That he knew what he was doing and that he could sit at the table with all of us. He chose children's literature, chose right. it. Right. Not because he couldn't write what everybody else was writing. And he's proven that too. Right. He chose it. And so a lot of this just has to do with, honestly, the other part of that is just, I really want to be respected by my, by my peers. Mm. It, I, I have a lot of admiration for a lot of contemporary writers. A lot of them. I really think that though there's a lot of bad books being made, there are a lot of brilliant writers working. Mm-hmm. Honestly, there really are especially writers of color. I mean, seriously, I can, we can run, I mean, from Mitchell, Mitchell Jackson and mm. Jacqueline Woodson and, and Ocean Vung and Kiese Lehman and Tiari Jones and Jericho Brown and Darnell Moore. And I mean, we could, I mean, I mean, Ty Selassie, No Violet Bulawayo, uh, Morgan Parker, Morgan Jerkins. We could do, oh, we can go on and okay. on and on and on and on. People of color who are getting busy and I want them to say, and you too, kid. Right. It matters to me. Right. You know? But other than that, the rest of it, 
like the seals and the shiny stickers and stuff like that. Like it, it is what it is. The ceremonies are cool. I'm grateful for it. I, I don't want to take it for granted. Like it's, it's, it's nice to be, to be praised. It's right. hard to do what we do. So right. it's nice to be acknowledged for it, but it isn't something that, uh, I don't put uh, more of a premium on it than I think belongs there. Okay. And it's just, and it's just about committee. Right. There are other books that are better than the books that I've written. Sure. But, but you know, they, things fall the way they fall. Well, you think there are books that are better. Wait, wait, wait. Fair, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. But again, um, we should go back to Jacqueline Woodson, though we're going to be moving around a lot. One of the things in this book, Red at the Bone, also another Brooklyn, is that she writes about living in the black female body in a way that I've never read aside from possibly Toni Morrison. Hmm. She complicates things and makes things easy at the same time. There are moments in the books, in her books, where I think, yes, oh my God, totally a million percent. And then there are moments where I think, huh, have I felt that? Hmm. Is that real? Is that right? I don't know. Like, it, there's just something about seeing black women bodies and constraint and anxieties in a way that so often it's like strong black woman, right? Like it's like strong black woman, strong black woman, strong black woman, or slutty black woman. Mm-hmm. And she complicates that a lot because her women characters are strong and some of them are slutty. And yet it never feels like those tropes. It never feels like that's that that is the thing that we're talking about. And I think that that's really special and important and difficult. And I, for me, that's what makes her books feel different and good. I don't know. I mean, you're not a black woman, nah. but you know them. <laughs> you were raised by one. A whole lot of them. You have I, lots I, of them I, that I, are in your world. I don't sure. know if you if you have any thoughts about her portrayal of black women. Her portrayal of black women, in my experience, are spot on. Yeah. I don't know what it means. To, I don't know what it means to be in the body, right? It's right. Be in the flesh, right? But I do know, like, there's the scene when Iris and Aubrey start having sex. Mm-hmm. I love when, and it happens so rarely, but I love when writers are writing black women as um, women who are in control of their sexuality mm-hmm. and who are, unaf- who are just kind of like, look, I, I know what it is that I want. Right. And I also know that you, man, are afraid and uncertain and insecure right. Right. and nervous. All these things that we put upon women in our everyday conversations. Uh, in my own experiences, this, this is closer to the truth mm-hmm. that, that men have... That, that so many men are scared and terrified that we talk so much trash about all the things, <laughs> right? Big chat, right? So much talk, 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 talk. And yet so much, so many feelings of inadequacy and uncertainty. Me and Damon have talked about this. Me and Fahamu Peku down in Atlanta, all of us, have, Damon, the three of us have talked about this very thing and about how women have often guided us through our sexual lives, mm. right? Have taught us and how to love them. And I, I thought that scene was one that some people might read it and feel it was uh, quote-unquote slutty, or whereas I read it and thought it was absolutely loving. Sure. I mean, you know, and that it was the way that she talks about uh, 
and it's not, I, I like the fact that Jacqueline has a way of writing these sorts of things void of romance. Right. And I, because I personally think, I mean, romance definitively means fantasy. Mm. And that's not what, the, like, we're not, we're talking very real things here. Right. We're not talking fantasy. Right. We're talking about carnality. Right. We're talking about animal nature. Right. Right. And, and, and I like that in most, I mean, as in the animal, and, and you think about animals, like women animals are dominant. Women animals, right. it's fascinating, uh, are devouring. Right? And it doesn't come across as like um, domineering or overbearing, all this other, it's, it's not like that. It's right. like, it's like, let me help you. Right. I can guide you through this. Right. And we will do this and it will be lovely, you know, and it will be scary too. Uh, for you, not for me, right? right? Because I've I'm been here before, yeah. and because I've been here before, right? <laughs> right. But, you know, but 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 I know that you haven't, and so I, I I will help you through this. Um, these are the conversations, and I won't say his name. But these are the conversations I've had with my younger brother, mm. right? Who is eighteen, mm. and he's like, AJ, uh, I got these feelings now. You know, like I feel like I'm ready. I feel like, I, what should I do? Do you want me to? One time he asked me, he said, Yo, you think maybe I should go practice on like my mom's bras? Uh, no. Don't, don't do that, oh, right? God. He's like, well, what should I do? And I told him, just like, you should just tell her you're afraid. Mm. Tell her that you this is your first time. And what you will see nine times out of ten is this woman help you along. Right. She won't laugh at you like you think she will. She won't make you feel small. Like it's not, it's not what's going what's gonna to happen is she's going to say, okay, right. I can help you and guide you. And that feels more true to me than than so many other of the things that I've read about black sexuality, black young sexuality. Mm-hmm. And now it's always like, you know, the fumble around. And yeah, that's true too. Either it's the fumble around or it's the man being way too confident and aggressive. Right. And, you know, right. but sometimes it's the woman saying, relax, I got right. you. I know right. what I like and what I want. Right. <laughs> right? Like, and let, 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 let's make this thing happen. Loved right. it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, to- you're totally right. I think that it, there's like a confidence in her women characters that we don't, that we just aren't shown a lot. The other thing that I love is the, the history and the research in this book. And a lot of fiction writers I've learned from doing this show love research. They love to do research. I think some of it has to do with their, they like to read and learn. And I think some of it has to do with it something they can do instead of writing. (laughs) That's what I've been told. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But a lot of times it's a big flex. Like I've done all this research and I'm going to put 20 pages of it in my book. And this in Red at the Bone, it's like, let me just drop a little nugget. Let me just tell you a little bit about Tulsa. Tulsa, Let me just kind of throw in just this moment of 9-11. It's just so subtle. And that to me is Jacqueline Woodson's confidence being like, I don't need to tell you everything I know. Trust me. I know it and I get it. And I did the work. Here's six sentences. Mm. You're welcome. And it is, that is masterful to me. And that's so, that is so, I don't need you to respect me. I know it. Like that is a flex to me. Just such a research flex, you know? I think that, yes. I mean, the Tulsa stuff, the 9-11 stuff. I mean, and really juxtapose. You really think about this book, right? Like what she's really, what it feels like she's saying to, and, and, and this is the beauty of literature that you get to sort of uh, pontificate about all of it. Because knowing her, 
She's so smart and she's so methodical. She's so intentional. And so it's like, all right, how do we talk about what it means to drop a bomb? Because this is what Melody is to Iris, right? Right. right? Melody is a bomb. She has dropped a bomb, right? And this bomb has it, it has the potential of destroying her world, her life. This is what she feels. So you look at Tulsa and how they were dropping bombs on black people and ruining their lives and ruining everything, ruining their dreams, ruining uh, their financial stability, taking away the infrastructure that they had built upon themselves, right, for themselves. Uh, and then you look at 9-11, which did the exact same thing, right? And in this case, of course, uh, spoiler, uh, takes Melody's father, this is, we're full of spoilers around here. Yeah, it is what it is. If you listen to this podcast, <laughs> you know what it is. Deep in. Right? You know? <laughs> but like you know, the, with those planes also are representative of bombs, right? Right. And and the, and the, a new bomb being dropped on on their lives, right? Right. And I think it's genius. Yeah. It's genius, and then to use it to talk about hidden gold. Right. Right. It's uh, like like it, it really the part where she's like, "Girl, there's something in this stair." Yeah. It's like, oh, uh, so good, so good. This one is this one isn't hollow, right? right? Because Grandma has hidden the gold there. Because after Tulsa and, and anyone who's grown up with grandparents who were either in Tulsa or or have gone through the depression, you know, like when, when my when my grandparents died, we found thousands of dollars in couch cushions. Wow. That they were that my grandmother was just stuffing in hmm. couch cushions. Hmm. Because she grew up, one, she lived through the Depression, and two, uh, she it was old school, and my grandfather wouldn't let her work. So she worked anyway and hid the money wow. in the couch cushions so that she could take care of her kids and get these special things that he refused to get. Right. Right? Right. Like, that's a real thing. It's like the old 90s movie Soul Food where they, where they find the money in the TV. This is a real thing. Yeah. It's a real thing. Like, yeah. they, they're hidden gold in the stair. Brilliant. And right. how it ends. Right. Now that all the bombs have been dropped, right? It is our net. Now we have the opportunity to go and dig up the treasure. There's a treasure for us. All the bombs have been dropped, and we are the lone survivors. These things have brought us back together. Hmm. Our bond has never been actually broken. We have just been far from one another, right? Right. And now to, we have no choice but to try to find the gold together. It's just the two of us, right? I am you. You and you are me. Right. And here we are. Looking for the gold that that was that was saved for us, right? Saved for us. We have nothing left and no one left. It really. I just. Uh, I really. She's good. She's she's good. I don't think people. I, I don't think anybody knows that. I think we just discovered Jacqueline Woodson <laughs> is talented. Just the, the just people, here the on people, this podcast. People who read the adult novels, <laughs> all of us kidlit people have known. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I I didn't even know of Jacqueline Woodson until I started doing this podcast. I'd never heard of her. She's a Toni Morrison of children's literature. Well, that is exactly how I felt reading her. Yeah. It's just, okay, let me ask you this. You write books about black and brown kids. You're a black man. How much of the white gaze are you conscious of? Because publishing is a white space, right? Like that's no secret. They're doing better. Ish. Sure. But you know, it's not, they're not doing better enough to make it not still a white space. Yeah. Right. So, and, and Jacqueline Woodson writes for kids. She writes for adults. She writes for everybody. But just like Toni Morrison said, like I write black stories for black people. If y'all want to jump on and read this, great. If you like it, great. Mm-hmm. How much of what you're doing are you thinking about like the white kids in the room? Are you? Oh God. Very little. Very little. Very little. I, I, I'm, I'm not, um, so arrogant. 
to believe that there's none of it there. It's, I live here. I'm from here. Right. Right. So it's, right. it's there, right? It's, it's there. Right? Here meaning America. Here meaning America, right? Okay. Um, it's, it's there. Um, but, uh, I diligently fight against it. Diligently, right? I fight with my language. I fight even with the sheer depiction of who they are. I could have been filthy rich a long time ago. Right. Because the stories that make you rich are so easy to write. Yeah. There's nothing to it. Right. Right. Is it easy to write because it's easy to tell that story or is it easy to write because nobody pushes back as you try to get it published? Uh, it's easy to write because the masses love to confirm what Got they it. believe black and brown children are. I see. Right. Everybody's searching for a confirmation. I told you they were scary. I told I you that. Right. Like I, all I, oh, those poor, poor kids, people love to sympathize and hate to mm. empathize. Because the empathize is, is, is a different kind of discomfort. Sympathy is easy. We throw it around, mm-hmm. right? We throw it around. To say I'm sorry takes nothing. Nothing. Thoughts and prayers right. takes nothing. Right. But to sit and, and live in the skin of a person, right? To have to, to have to be there at that funeral, be there at the hospital and watch the last breath. It's a very different beast. Mm. It's a different thing. And my job is to... Uh, I, Take the black child as I as I know them, the brown child as I know them, and to put them on a pedestal. And on that pedestal, all the things can exist with them. On that small pedestal platform, all of their wounds and their medicines right. can be both can be there. Uh and and they're and they're lifted up. Right? They're lifted up and they're exalted for who they are. Right. And and, and, and by the way, who they are are just human. Right. Right? I'm, I'm basically saying I want to lift them up into humanity to be seen as human. I don't want them to be seen as gods because right? that's not that's because I don't think that's helpful either. Right, I that's think just as not true. It, and everybody thinks that we're that, that we're magical and that we're, you know, it's like, yo, Serena Williams is Serena Williams because she works harder than everybody. Right. That's why Oprah is Oprah because she's worked harder. She has a different ethic. She comes from a place. She, she got it out the mud, as we say. Mm. That's why. Right. right? It ain't because she's magical. Right. <laughs> right. Michelle Obama spent her life working hard right. to become Michelle Obama. I don't want it to be somebody asked me a, a PBS interview one time asked me, Do you do you can would you say that you're a savant? Talking to me. Hmm. And I said, uh I said uh, to call myself or to allow anyone else to call me a savant dismisses my hard work. Right. No, I'm not, nor am I exceptional. Right. But that's something that I think makes white folks comfortable is this idea of the exceptional Negro, mm-hmm. right? We hear that all the time. But this idea that if you are black and good at basketball, that that's something that's natural to you. And so therefore their own kid who sucks at basketball because he never tries and doesn't practice <laughs> his free throws, it's, it's natural to him to be bad at that, right? Exactly. That, that we make excuses for people's success so that we don't have to actually examine what it takes to be successful. Exactly. I think, I think that the, 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 and I, I hate the narrative, but there's a part of it that I do believe, which is the greatest head start many of us ever had was struggle. Hmm. And I don't think that you I've need, never heard that. Yeah. And I don't think that you need struggle uh, to be great. But I do think it gives you, I am unafraid. Right. I'm not scared of, of your knockdowns. I'm not scared. Nothing, ain't nothing you're going to do to me that I ain't already had happen or that I ain't seen happen to my mother mm. or my friend. Mm. None of it. I ain't worried about you. And there's nothing you can tell me to make me feel small. Nothing. Right. And all I'm trying to do is make sure that these young folks, when they read these stories, when they, when they close that book, 
they stand up a little taller. Lift your chin up. You ain't got no reason to be small and making yourself quiet. Nah, you want to laugh with your whole body, laugh with your whole body all the time. Let them look. So what? They wish they had that joy. Right. Well, okay. So you talk, you talked about this a lot. I think you talk about this often and I wasn't going to ask you about it, but we're here. (laughs) You talk about your mom, you were raised in a family where you were allowed to talk back. Yeah. And for those of you who aren't black or brown, probably that might not sound like a big deal because you probably (laughs) talk back to your parents in a way that is inappropriate, but that's a huge thing. My dad was was born in the thirties in Louisiana. We did not talk back. (laughs) Though we were allowed to kind of argue, negotiate. Mm -hmm. We were allowed to advocate for ourselves a Mm -hmm. little bit. But my question for you is you talk about how, you know, your mom used to tell you, if you're going to talk back though, you got to stay with your chest. You got to hold your square, I think is Mm -hmm. the phrase. What was your mother's response when you would do that? Mm. Like if she didn't agree, you got in trouble for stealing a cookie from the cookie jar and you said, no mom, I didn't have my cookie for the day. And then she, you know, like how would she respond to that? So if, if, you know, if it was, so the one thing that we couldn't do was lie. Okay. Lying was off the table. Okay. Right. Lying is where all communication stops and now it's, it's big, it's a big deal. Okay. That was her, that was her one non-negotiable. Okay. No lying. Um, every, you know, every time I was, you know, spanked, it was because of lying. Okay. Uh, But everything else was on the table. So she, my mother, my mother had been hardened by life and by work. She worked in an all white male environment mm. and it, she had been through some things and she brought it home all the time. Okay. And so a lot of the ways that we, she would talk to us would be, she was, she was terse and she was harsh, you know? And so when she would get upset, it wasn't no joke. And so a lot of the times when I would be talking back, it would be like, listen, I hear you. And if I messed up, I messed up, but you didn't have to cuss me out and you didn't have to yell. There are, there are other, I'm like seven. I'm like, there had to have been a better way for us to have this conversation. Like now I'm, my feelings are hurt because you're yelling and you won't let me, you won't even just like take a moment, take a moment. And, and, and nine times out of 10, what would happen in those moments is she would take a beat and she would say, you're right. I'm sorry. Like, I, I'm, I apologize. Let me, let me sit down. Let's, let's try this again. Mm. Um, let me explain why I'm upset. Let me explain why what you've done has upset me and, 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 and why I'm, and, and though I'm, I'm reacting not in the best way. I do want you to understand why this upsets me and what we need to do going forward. Mm. Um, and sometimes I would say, well, she'd say, well, I want, I want you to go to your room and stay in there. If, you know, you're, you're punished for a week. And I would be like, yo, I just think a week is harsh. <laughs> right. I'd be like, you know, I'm like a week. I'm like, you know, that's a long time for this particular offense. I think, can we at least talk about why I, I thought something And my mom would listen, literally listen to me plead my case. And she's, you know, and then she'd say, it's, it's a week, mm-hmm. right? Like, I hear you. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I really do hear you. But no, you have to, you're your own punishment. You right. know? But it was never any fear. I remember when I was second grade, I used to cuss everybody out because I saw it in my household, right? Okay. I grew up around vulgarity. Right. And so I remember being in the second grade, I'm just cussing everybody out, just talking crazy. And, <laughs> right? And, and I think an elder heard me in the neighborhood and was like, yeah, you should be talking like that. Like, man, like you should not be talking, you should be ashamed of yourself with such foul language, you know? And I felt so bad because I had like disappointed a neighbor, like somebody right. up the street, you know? And so I went home and told my mom, Ma, I've been cussing a lot. Like always, Ma, I've been cussing. And I just, and she's like, why are you telling me? And she's like, I just feel like I feel bad about it. I need to get it out. I want you to know. And she's like, well, stop, stop cussing. Like if you don't feel good about that, stop doing that. Right. Okay, Ma, but 
it was never any like you cussing. Right. It was just kind of like, okay, open lines of communication. When I was a teenager and I started having sex, best conversation of my life with my mother. (laughs) And she sat me down. She already knew, of course, because they always know. Okay. And she sat, (laughs) and she sat me down and she said, um, I know you're having sex. And of course, I'm like choking on a chicken bone right, at this point. Right, like, what? Wait, right. what? <laughs> no, never. <laughs> I don't do that, but I can't lie. Right. All right. I'm no not lie. allowed. Right? Right, right, right. And so I'm like, yeah. Are you mad? And she's like, no. <laughs> Why would I be upset? <laughs> and she said, but there are some things I want you to know. I said, okay. And she said, number one, women are people, not furniture. I'll never forget this as long as I live. Wow. Right? I'm like 15, 16. Okay. Women are people, not furniture. If it looked like it hurts, it hurts. Um, like straight up and down. Uh, number two, she's like, I want to make sure that if you're going to be doing this, that you understand if you can't take it. Don't take advantage of people. Don't lie and, and use young women um, for whatever you want from them. Right? It's just mm. not cool. Like it says, just don't do that. And then she was like, and number three, I want you to masturbate as often as possible. Amazing. And she said, and the reason why is because uh, you can never enjoy this unless you know yourself. Mm. Get to know your body. Mm. And then at the end of this conversation, she says, I know you think I'm going to tell you not to do it again because I'm your mom. And she is like, but that's silly. I, I could never tell you that because anyone who's ever done it will do anything to do it again. Especially a teenage boy. Especially a teenage boy. Right, and, right. That, and that was the conversation. <laughs> and, it was, and, and it was, and she gave me a big hug. And we, and, and so then that line of communication was open and we could talk freely. Right. I could ask questions. I could avoid certain mistakes. Right. And then all my friends would come over and, and ask they, your mom. Yeah. Because they couldn't <laughs> ask their moms. Right. Of course not. It's great. Shout out to moms. Yeah. Your mom is so great. I love you, mom. I love you, mom, too. I also <laughs> love my mom who listens. Mom, you're great, though we did not have sex talk, which is honestly fine. <laughs> which is fine. Which is fine. But like, I found out, like, I don't know. Do you remember finding out things about your parents? Like things that yes. they did that I, I was, I was like, 30 years old when I found out that my parents used to do cocaine, which. Yeah, of course they did. Of course they did. <laughs> of course they but did. why did I not understand that? Yeah. Yes. And by used to do cocaine, I actually don't know how many times. I just know that at least once because I had said I've never done coke. And my mom was like, you haven't? And I was like, wait. You have? I was like, excuse me. She's like, yeah, I grew up in the Bay Area in the 70s. Like Everyone was doing was cocaine. She was in Cal in 1970-something. Like, of course. of course. But it to me. I never had that illusion. Oh, I did. <laughs> I'm such a prude, too, though, because I've, I've never. like They like, never. Like, you did. Sh- she like, literally uh, was like, I've never been more disappointed in you than not knowing that, of course, on. I did cocaine, you come idiot. On. But like, she like, parents are confusing. Parents are so It's hard so because confusing. you don't get, I, I, this is not about the book at all, but it is kind of about the book. <laughs> it is. Because this book is about parents. It, it, yeah, it's about generational, like yeah. families and generations of different sex of the same family. Right. It, yeah. yeah. We're basically out of time, but we have to do a few, few things. Okay. I, I wish we had. I'm sorry, everybody. Just we should. I wish we. We had so much to talk about. I know. I'm sorry, but it was you been, might be our. You might be the first ever person that gets to come back on the so. podcast. I hope so. Well, you write so many books. That's true. <laughs> like if you keep writing books, you can come back. Um, everyone else, like you know, they take like six years to write a book. So I don't, you know. Um, okay, here's the things we have to do. We have to talk about the cover and the title. Okay. What do you think of them? Of what? Which the book? cover. Of which book? Oh, oh read right at the bone. Oh. 
this conversation is about Reddit, <laughs> even though it kind of feels like it's about just Jacqueline Woodson because it's it's both things. Um, the cover and the title of Reddit the Bone. Great. Yeah, I think I think both. I think that uh, I love the title. I love that title. I love the title. Nailed. It comes up in reference to uh, ah. sex yeah. with between Jam and Iris, mm-hmm. and she feels raw. Mm-hmm. Red at the bone, but mm-hmm. it also has kind of been referenced earlier in the book talking about chicken. Chicken. Yeah. They don't say the title there, but it's brought up. About the way the chicken's being eaten. Yeah. Way differently than the way they would do it. Right. As in class, right? right. So it's like basically poor poor boys eating the chicken. A, a poor a poor poorer person is eating the chicken and he's eating it down to the bone. Right. Whereas, whereas they're like, yo, we don't do that. We don't get to the red. We don't get part. to the where, where, where it's less cooked. You know? Right. <sighs> it's great. It's really brilliant. Time. And it's great how she does that before she actually says it in like the emotional way yeah. of Iris. And, and what it means to, exactly. And what it means to be red at the bone. Right. Like what does that mean? What does it mean to uh, to be raw on the inside? Right. Right. It's so good. It's so good. So I don't love the cover. Me neither. I don't like the colors. It, it feels a little soft. I don't. The colors are like I. I if you asked me to pick seven colors to put together, <laughs> it would take me fifty years to pick these seven colors yeah. or whatever. And I also, I guess, maybe you're not supposed to know which girl it is on the cover. Yeah, I don't think so. But I don't know. It just I, doesn't. It doesn't feel specific to me. I think the paperback would be different. I hope so. Me too. Because it doesn't feel. The book is better than the cover. I, I a thousand percent. I'm with you. And I feel like usually I like a book when I mean I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover. We all do. But hello, there's too many books. <laughs> like if I don't know anything about your book and I've never read your work before, and someone says to me, lines up a bunch of books, I'm just gonna pick one that I think looks like me or yep. looks like what I want to feel like. And I don't think the outside of this matches the inside. Yeah. I think the inside is much more red at the bone. Absolutely. <laughs> the outside's like the skin, you know, it's like totally different. Um, but the book, the insides are good. And also, if you take the jacket off, the two tone, oh, it's really pretty. It is really nice. They're really pretty. Those colors are good. It's like a blue and a green blue. Okay. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I just want to talk to you forever. Um, <laughs> Can we be friends? <laughs> we can definitely be friends. <laughs> you guys heard it here. Jason Reynolds and I are best friends. What's up? <laughs> I think that's it. Is there anything else you want to say about – oh, I I do. There's one more thing I want to say. And this is not about the book, but this is about your relationship with Jacqueline Woodson mm-hmm. and other people who have come before you. And I've heard you talk about this in a lot of different spaces. But would you just mind sharing your philosophy on um, gatekeeping or like opening the doors for other people? Because I think it's so important. Yeah. Especially in art. Yeah, I think, you know, I, so I, I was telling, recently I was telling a story about Jacqueline and about, I mean, she's somebody who's very near and dear to me personally in my life and has been um, a wild mentor to me professionally. And so there was this one time, I, I think it was the National Book Award, I was nominated finalist, um, shortlisted for Ghost a couple years ago when Dr. Ibram X. Kendi won for Stamp from the Beginning. And, and, uh, Jacqueline is there. Also, she was also nominated for another Brooklyn. Okay. And I remember going up to her at the end of it and we're like laughing and joking. And I, and I, I try to make sure I give my, my heroes their flowers. I'm big on that. 
everybody getting their flowers as often as possible mm-hmm. while we have them here. And that, by the way, everyone should do that. Tell your people that you like and that you love that you love them, mm-hmm. whether they know you or not, whether they respond or not, tell them, you know. Yeah. And so I, I said, Jackie, look, man, I just want to say, like, I love you so much and I'm so grateful for all you've done for me. And she, it's a lot, everybody. She's done a lot for me, all you've done for me. Uh, but I just want you to know, like, I can, you know, I'm, I'm, I can feel myself climbing. I can feel the wave, right? And, and the flow of, of my career is sort of picking up. Just know that, like, I'm always going to have you on this pedestal. You'll always sit above me. Um, and it is a safe space. I will never be able to knock you off that, that space. Mm-hmm. You will, you will hold that throne forever. Um, I'm never going to be able to pass you. And it's okay. I want you, I just want you to know that. And, and for me, it's coming from a place of humility, right? A place of like a gratitude. And her response was, you think, you think that's a compliment? Like you think, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh yeah, I mean, I'm just saying. And she's like, Jason, you think I've worked 30 years and I've written, I think Jack has written 35 books. Yeah. Right. 30 years. I've done all these things. I've, 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 I've worked so hard. You think I've done all that work for you to not pass me? Hmm. You think that it's, it's the, the greatest disrespect, the greatest insult would be for you to not push the line forward, push the tradition and the legacy forward. Right. Um, uh, like that would be the greatest travesty. And and not only should you do it, but you should do it in half the time. Uh, like that, that's, that's when I know that I've done my job. My mother used to always say something that I stick by. Uh, you can't be a king unless you could be a kingmaker. Right. And that there's room for everybody. There's room. Of course. Cause no one's doing what you're doing. And if they are, they won't be able to sustain it. If they're yeah. stealing from you, if that's your, you know, there's people who try to do exactly what, Jason Reynolds does, right? Mm. And like those people don't last yeah. because it's not coming from them. But yeah. if it's an authentic person, there's room. Sure. And we all got access. We all got where we are because someone else made space for us. Let's talk about it. I mean, the biggest misconception is that there's limited seats at the table. Right. It's just not true. The table is massive. Right. Right. We haven't even begun to fill the seats. Right. The table is massive. Right. Um, it's just our job to make sure that we're making space, as you right. said. Right. Yeah. And on that note, we should get out of here. Yeah. Um, Jason, thank you so much. This has been such a treat. My pleasure. Thank you. Yay. And you guys, we will see you in the stacks. All right, you guys, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, thank you to Jason Reynolds for being our guest. I'd also like to say thank you to the folks over at Riverhead for sending us a review copy of Red at the Bone. You can find everything we discussed on today's episode in the link in the show notes. Make sure to get your book recommendation read on air by sending us an email at askingthestacks at gmail.com. For more from The Stacks, please follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join the Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. Make sure you are subscribed to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>